is taken from the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. Ephesians, chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. The Bible reads, For this reason, I knew before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and how high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joseph, very much indeed. Well, last time Alfred was with us, we were in Ephesians, and here we are ten years later, in Ephesians. You can never get out of Ephesians. So do have it open in front of you and uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for giving to us a living word and we thank you that this word is God-breathed and able to make us wise for salvation. And we ask that you would speak words to us this morning that are timely and needful and helpful and wonderful. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for several years, um, Mars Hill Church in North America, up in Seattle, it seemed to be just too big to fail. So in 2013, nine years ago, the average weekly attendance was uh, 12,000 people across 15 locations. In that year alone, they baptized 1,000 people one year, they planted 53 churches in India, uh, they supported 20 church planters and evangelists in Ethiopia, they released 50 new worship songs, they gave away more than 3,000 Bibles, and they received over 25 million US dollars in tithes and offerings. All of that in one year. 
Four years later, the whole thing collapsed. Uh, Today, Mars Hill Church no longer exists. Uh, When they finally closed the doors for the last time, the church had been in existence for less than 20 years. Since then, of course, there have been uh, endless blogs and podcasts trying to analyse what went wrong, and no doubt there are lots and lots of important lessons to learn. But I think one thing in particular stands out. When the church was quite young, the founding pastor, a guy called Mark Driscoll, wrote a book in which he describes how it all began. This is what he wrote. Listen carefully. In the beginning, the people who showed up were generally non-Christians, new Christians, legalistic Christians, anti-Christians, and bitter, burned-out, de-churched, maybe Christians, who all wanted to be in authority over themselves and do whatever they wanted in the name of community, which was code for mini-riot anarchy. Uh, This included a member of the worship band stopping the service at one point to read texts from other religions in the name of pluralistic diversity. It included young guys in their 20s asking on their first visit when it was their turn to preach. It included singles sleeping together and unwilling to stop because Jesus had told them that it was okay with him. And it included some guy who threw a bicycle at me in the church because I asked him to park it outside. Before long, I was ready to resign as the pastor and volunteer in Kingdom Kids with the toddlers to enjoy the company of some more mature people. End quote. No doubt that's an extreme example, but don't miss the obvious point. Right from the very beginning, there was disunity at Mars Hill. And the cause of the disunity was a painful spiritual immaturity. The pastor says he expected to find more mature people in Kingdom Kids. Now, what do you do in a situation like that? Well, let me say straight away, there is no such thing as the perfect church. Uh, I'm sure you know that, but this side of heaven, there's no such thing as a church that is perfectly united and perfectly mature. So, for example, when we read the Apostle Paul's letters to the churches of the New Testament, they're a pretty mixed bunch. On the one hand, we find there were some wonderful things to celebrate. Uh, Lots of people growing in their faith in the Lord and in their love for one another. But we also find squabbling, sexual immorality, complacency, heresy, compromise, irreverence, and even unbelief. All symptoms of spiritual immaturity. The amazing thing is, and I think it is amazing, is that the Apostle Paul didn't give up. You know, he was never overwhelmed by those problems. 
You know, the apostle didn't threaten to resign and go and join kingdom kids in the nursery. Why not? Why didn't he? Well, it was because, you see, he kept his focus on God's great plan. That was what gripped Paul. That was what kept him on track. What is God's plan? Well, you know, we've been looking at, looking at it together, haven't we, over the last few weeks. But in essence, it is that through the gospel, God is creating a new humanity, a new race of men and women reconciled to himself, reconciled to one another through the cross. And what we've learned is that this great reconciling work happens through the ministry of the local church. That's why we said last week that the church is at the centre of the gospel. Not a lot of Christians know that. That's what Paul says. Now that is the message Paul received from God. And he wasn't going to be put off either by slow progress or by the behaviour of a disobedient minority. Because, you see, Paul knows what you and I sometimes forget, which is that it takes time to build a real church. It's not surprising. Uh, after all, the, the church is full of sinners, uh, redeemed sinners, certainly, but still, still sinners. It's people like me. It's people like you. And so instead of getting frustrated, Paul prays. And his prayer, the text we're looking at this morning, is a model prayer for you and me as we seek to live out our lives in fellowship with God and in fellowship with one another. Now, I'm sure you know that in this letter, Paul records two of his prayers for us, and there's a very important connection between them. So Paul's first prayer, uh, back in chapter 1, is a prayer for revelation. So just page back to chapter 1, verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Paul asks God, the glorious Father, to give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know God better. Now, friends, that is where the Christian life begins. We need to know what it means to have Almighty God as our Father. But Paul's second prayer, the one we're looking at this morning, is a prayer for spiritual maturity. Now, I'm sure you can see that the link between those two prayers is obvious. Because once we've joined the family, we need to start growing up. So in our passage this morning, verse 19 is the key verse. Have a look at verse 19, chapter 3, verse 19, because in verse 19, Paul prays that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And I guess that's one of those verses which you look at and your eyes glaze over and you think to yourself, what on earth does that mean? Is that just religious jargon? What on earth does Paul mean when he talks about the fullness of God? Well, Bible words have Bible meaning. So look ahead to chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12 
where Paul explains how various people in the church are going to serve. And in the middle of verse 12, he says they serve so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, now pay attention, and become mature, attaining to the whole fullness of Christ. So you see, when Paul talks about the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ, he's talking about spiritual maturity. And uh, in the prayer we're looking at today, he's praying that we might become spiritually mature, that we might become all that God intends for us to be. Now, friends, this is absolutely essential. What Africa needs today, more than anything else, is spiritually mature men and women in the churches. We don't need any more churches filled with people who've made absolutely no progress since they became Christians 25 years ago. We don't need any more of that. No, we need spiritually mature men and women because they are the raw material from which God builds the kind of churches that are genuinely a display of God's wisdom to a lost and dying world. Now, there's masses we could learn from this prayer. We can't look at it all today. We're going to have to be selective and focus on the big lessons. But before we look at the prayer more closely, please will you notice Paul's attitude. In verse 14, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father. Now that's significant. Because in those days, the Jew normally prayed standing up. Kneeling in prayer was highly unusual. But whenever it happened, it always indicated an extraordinary degree of passion and earnestness and intensity. So you don't need to look it up, but in Mark's Gospel, for example, we're told that when the Lord Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died, knowing exactly what was going to happen the next day when he was nailed to the cross for the sins of the world, Mark says that he fell to the ground and prayed. So in that moment of tremendous intensity, Jesus prayed on his knees. Now, of course, Scripture doesn't command us to pray in any particular position. Uh, we can pray anytime, anywhere. But you see, the point is that kneeling demonstrates physically what ought to be happening spiritually. It signifies our humble submission before God and our complete and utter dependence on his grace. And can I say to us this morning that you and I need to take this on board because, you see, our culture encourages us to think that we can be completely self-sufficient. Many people think that way materially and we can easily be deceived into thinking that way spiritually as well. Of course, kneeling in prayer is not compulsory, especially for those of us with dodgy knees. 
But it can be a really helpful reminder of the reality that we are always completely dependent on God for life and breath and everything. So, turning from Paul's attitude in this prayer, what can we learn from the content? What does Paul teach us here about how we can pray for spiritual maturity in ourselves and for the St. Barnabas Church family? Three big lessons to take away. First, Paul shows us that we are to pray for radical inner transformation. We're to pray for a radical inner transformation. Look down, please, at verse 16. Verse 16, Paul says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if you're wide awake this morning, and I'm sure that you are, you may have spotted there's a problem, potentially, in verse 16. Elsewhere, the Bible says that Christ comes to dwell within us from the very moment we're converted. Is that not right? Yes? So why is it necessary, then, for Paul to pray that Christ might dwell in the hearts of those who are already converted? Wasn't he dwelling there already? Well, the word translated dwell in verse 17 is unusually strong. Uh, the Bible sometimes talks about a person uh, dwelling for a while as a stranger in a foreign land. And usually it's telling us that they weren't there permanently. They didn't really belong. Now that is not the word that Paul is using here. Now, the word that Paul uses here means to settle down and make the place your home. And Paul is praying that Christ will do that in you and in me. What does he actually mean? Well, uh, think for a moment about a young couple buying their first home. Uh, when they first move in, uh, they recognize that the house has terrific potential but it actually needs really rather a lot of work. Uh, there's fluorescent pink wallpaper in the master bedroom. Uh, there are huge piles of rubbish in the basement. Uh, the kitchen looks as if it's been designed more for the convenience of the plumber than for the cook. And when the first rains come, they find that the roof is leaking in ten different places. But it is the couple's first home. And they're committed to it. So gradually, over the years, they work hard to transform it. Um, the fluorescent pink wallpaper is replaced with something rather more tasteful. Uh, they fix the leaking roof. They remodel the kitchen. And as the family grows, they clear out the rubbish in the basement and they make a couple of extra bedrooms. And eventually, 25 years later, the husband says to his wife, do you know, dear, I really like it here. This place suits us. Everywhere we look, we can see the results of our labor. This house 
has finally been shaped to our needs and to our tastes. Well, that is the idea in this prayer. When Christ first moves into our hearts, he finds the moral equivalent of grotesque wallpaper, piles of rubbish in the basement, and a leaking roof. And he begins the task of transforming us into a residence that is comfortable for him. How does he do that? Verse 16. By strengthening us with power through his spirit in our inner being. Now that, you see, is how Christ makes his home in our lives. But for most of us, it takes rather a long time. Now I think we just need to pause on this for a moment because all of us go through seasons when we think that actually we are just too big a project. We start to think there's too much rubbish to deal with, even for Jesus. And we actually begin to despair. That's certainly how it is for me, and maybe that's how it is for you as well. So it's really, really, really important for us to take to heart the confidence Paul has that God will actually do this. Notice, will you, that Paul prays that God will do it out of his glorious riches. Now, that is not a brilliant translation. A better translation would be that God would do it according to his glorious riches. You may say that doesn't sound very different. I can assure you it is massively different. Suppose for a moment uh, you approach a a wealthy man uh, to support you in ministry. You tell him what your ministry is going to be about. And uh, he says, well, that's terribly interesting. I'd love to help. Here's a hundred rand. Well, that's a start. We're very thankful. But a hundred rand isn't going to get us very far. Now, in that example, what he's doing is he's giving out of his riches. But imagine alternatively that he sits down and he says, well, tell me how much you need. And then he writes you a check or sends an EFT for the full amount. Now, when he does that, he's giving according to his riches. Now, that is the sense in this passage. That is how God gives to you and me. Whatever you need in order to become a dwelling where Jesus is going to feel really at home, God will write the check. By the way, uh, don't get confused by the word riches. Uh, This is not the prosperity gospel. Paul is not encouraging us here to ask for material riches. Because our greatest need is to grow in our knowledge and love of God. And Paul is saying that if that's going to happen, God has got to do that by his power. Do you remember that uh, when we looked at Paul's first prayer back in chapter 1, we saw that God has an inexhaustible power supply which we can tap into through prayer. There's no load shedding with God. Now, that is a, this is a great outworking of that principle. 
in order for us to become a dwelling where Jesus will feel at home, God must strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being. And the fantastic news is that there is no obstacle to God doing that on his side. But on our side, friends, we need to pray with faith. We need to trust that God really does have the power to bring about that wonderful inner transformation in our lives. What will this transformation look like in practice? Well, Professor Don Carson has written a marvellous book on the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. And listen to what he says. I hope this might appear on the screen. What does it look like when God does this wonderful transforming work in our lives. Don Carson says this. The first petition then is a plea for power. Power to be holy. Power to think, act and talk in ways utterly pleasing to Christ. Power to strengthen moral resolve. Power to walk in transparent gratitude to God, power to be humble, power to be discerning, power to be obedient and trusting, power to grow in conformity to Jesus Christ. God's purpose for the men and women he redeems is not simply to have them believe certain truths, but to transform them in a lifelong process that stretches towards heaven. So when we pray for spiritual maturity, we pray for radical inner transformation. Then secondly, we pray for a growing appreciation for the love of Christ. A growing appreciation for the love of Christ. Look down, please, at verse 17b. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, one of the very first things that every Christian is taught is that God loves them. In fact, we can't actually conceive of a person becoming a Christian without knowing that the heart of the gospel is the cross and that the heart of the cross is the love of God. And that, of course, is why Paul thinks of every Christian as somebody who is rooted and established in love. But verse 18 shows that even though Paul's readers are Christians, he believes that they are not adequately appreciating the love of Christ. They haven't yet grasped it as firmly as they need to. So what's the solution? You know, is it a matter of having a longer quiet time in the morning? Uh, is it a question of reading more biographies of Christians who've had extraordinary experiences of the love of Christ? Well, clearly it's neither of those things. Because Paul says in verse 19 
But he wants us to have something that surpasses knowledge. So can you see that Paul is not praying that we might be able to grasp the love of Christ intellectually? That's not what this prayer is about. He's talking about our experience. He's asking God to give us power to grasp the full extent of Christ's love in our daily experience, which means he's talking about feelings. And as soon as I say that, people get rather suspicious. They start shifting in the pew. Because in conservative Christian circles, people are extremely comfortable with a clear, articulate presentation of the gospel. But uh, as soon as the preacher starts talking about spiritual experience, they begin to worry that some ghastly heresy is being introduced by the back door. Can I say that the Bible is not suspicious about spiritual experience? It's all over the Psalms. And you may remember in the account of King David, who we were looking at last year, that uh, there was a time when King David danced before the Lord. His wife wasn't very pleased about that, but he did. Or think of uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Uh, When Jesus opened his eyes to see that God loved him, what did Zacchaeus do? You know, did he say, you know, that's terribly interesting, Jesus, let me go away and think about it? No, he didn't. He said, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now, friends, that's astonishing because until Jesus broke into his life, Zacchaeus had never given anything to anybody. But you see, that's what an experience of the love of Christ does, isn't it? It moves you to live differently. Or think of the woman in Luke chapter 7. Do you remember her? She'd been living a sinful life. And uh, she came to Jesus when Jesus was attending a very smart dinner party. What did she do? Did she say to Jesus, you know, I so enjoyed our conversation the other day. I've just got one, one or two more questions. And if you can answer those to my satisfaction, I might consider coming to church on Sunday. Did she do that? No, she didn't. What did she do? Well, she was so moved by the love of Christ that she stood at Jesus' feet, weeping. She made his feet wet with her tears, and then she wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. So can you see, Paul is talking about something that is just way, way, way bigger than intellectual comprehension. And in verse 19, notice this, Paul says this is something that we must have in order to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, we can never become spiritually mature without this. We can't. So can I ask you, has this happened to you yet? And I'm asking because this is not something that you and I can do for ourselves something that only God can do for us, which means we've got to pray for it. 
And can I just draw your attention to something in verse 18? Because in verse 18, Paul prays that his readers will experience this. Notice the phrase, together with all the saints. So friends, this is something that happens in community. You know, I'd already been a Christian for 11 years before I even began to glimpse what Paul is actually talking about here. Uh, And I was very well taught at the time. But it wasn't something I discovered for myself. It happened to me when I was actually in an extended time of prayer with a dear Christian brother. And lots of other people were praying for me outside the room at the same time. Now there's no magic formula here. But if you haven't yet grasped the limitless dimensions of the love of Christ for you, Paul is saying you are extremely unlikely to find it by yourself at home. If you want this in your life, the place to start is by praying and then investing yourself in your relationships with your brothers and sisters at church. Thirdly, and very briefly, if we want to be spiritually mature, Paul reminds us that when we pray, we pray to a generous, generous, all-powerful Father. You know, I think when we uh, look back on these prayer requests we've been thinking about this morning, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to think, well, I just can't see this happening. Uh, I've been treading water as a Christian for years, and uh, the idea that I might ever actually grow and mature as a Christian, well, you know... It's nice to think about, but it's really an impossible dream. Now, that's why we need verses 20 and 21. Because they are the climax, not just to the prayer we're looking at this morning, but to everything that Paul has said in the first half of the letter. Look at them again with me. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Famous words. But what on earth is Paul saying? Well, if you boil it down, I suppose the essence of what he's saying is God is able to do what we ask. Well, that's good to know. But he's saying a lot more than that. He says, notice this, that God is able to do what we ask and also what we imagine. And uh, you might perhaps imagine a conversation in which you invite your next-door neighbour to church, but your next-door neighbour is an extremely tricky, tricky customer. You're rather scared of him, so you don't do it. But Paul says, if you're imagining it, Paul wants you to know that God is able to do it. Not only that, God is able to do all that we ask or imagine. So there's absolutely no area or sphere of your life that is excluded from this. Your career, your marriage, your ministry, your studies, your friendships, your health, 
everything. Paul says you can pray about any area of your life. And as long as you're not praying for selfish gain, but you're praying for spiritual maturity, God is both able and willing to answer that prayer. And then notice that Paul says, God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. So for example, uh, you may be thinking, well, it'd be great if God would enable me to actually love that difficult person who's been saying such incredibly unkind things about me. Be careful when you pray that prayer. Because God might do more than that. He might make them your best friend. Because he's able to do more than we ask or imagine. And not just that. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So, my dear friends, this is the God to whom Paul prayed. My question for you this morning is, is this the God you pray to? I think it would be nice if we stand and pray together Paul's prayer for ourselves, as it appears on the screen, adapted for our purposes. Let's stand. stand together. Heavenly Father, we pray that out of your glorious riches you will strengthen us with power through your Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And we pray that being rooted and established in love, we may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to you, who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but I don't know what the first song you learned as a Christian um, was, but one of the first songs I remember learning was, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong, yes, Jesus loves
Thank you very much. I can take our seats.